Welcome this morning. My name's Philip. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here. If I've not got a chance to meet you, I would love to do so after the service. If you're here for the first time, you're jumping in on a series that we began a few weeks ago through the first three chapters of the Bible, which we understand to be God's word given to us for life. And so whatever you're coming from, whoever you are, we're glad you're here. Uh, We want you to know that we don't consider ourselves the people who hold the life that we know and can give you the best form of life in and of ourselves. But we all are looking to Jesus who gives us eternal life. We hope if you have not found him and life in him that among every above everything else, your time with us would lead you to him. Uh, So we're actually coming into the middle of a series where we're looking at the beginning of all things, God's creation of the world. In the last couple weeks, we've looked at Genesis 1 into chapter 2, verse 3, where we've witnessed God create the universe in a seven-day sweep and rest from all his work. But there's a lot more to the Bible than just the first opening verses. There's a lot more that has happened in human history. So we now ask, what will God do with the world, with the universe that he's created? This morning, we'll see that he makes it come alive in Genesis chapter two, verse four to 17. So if you're not already open to it, please open your Bible to Genesis chapter two. If you're looking at the pew Bible in front of you, the blue book, you'll find it on page two of that those copies. Now, as we'll see, as we get into this narrative, there's going to be some overlap in the narrative accounts between Genesis 1 and chapter 2. So we'll see things described in more full detail, honed in on, that were already covered in chapter 1. This is not a second creation account. This is just a fuller explanation of the one that has already been narrated. So we begin in verse 4, Genesis 2. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So if you were to read later today the rest of the book of Genesis, you would actually see the whole book divided by the phrase, these are the generations. It's repeated ten times, marking off the successive turns of life. That happened after the garden. All the way to the story of Joseph. These accounts usually begin with a person's name. And then give a long list of people who are descended from that person. But here at the beginning. Things have their start in God's creation. In the heavens and earth. All of life does not come from a human being. But first comes from God. The Lord of all creation. God is responsible for creating everything. He is introduced to us in Genesis 1 with the Hebrew name God or Elohim. In Genesis 2 verse 4 in your English translation, you'll see him referred to in this chapter as the Lord God or Yahweh Elohim. This name is a title of supremacy. It is telling us that God is the God above all gods. God will introduce himself to Moses later at the burning bush with the name Yahweh, I am. It is as if the narrative is intending for us to see because God is, everything else is. 
In him all things move and have their being. God relates to his creation as creator and as master, as Lord. He is both responsible for life and he is the ruler of life. This is the main argument I think the author is making here in our passage in chapter 2, verse 4 to 17. The Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, is the Lord of all life. And we see that argument, that point, developed in three ways. God gives life. God sustains life. And God defines life. God gives life, God sustains life, and God defines life. If you're taking notes, that's the way we're going in the rest of our time. So let's begin seeing how it is that God gives life. Look at verse 5 and 6. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground... And a mist was going up from the land. It was watering the whole face of the ground. Okay, let's stop there. You've never known the world without life in it. You've likely never gone a day without some form of human contact. So imagining the scene here is a bit of a challenge. Picture standing in the middle of Loose Park... Looking around, and all you can see, for as far as you can see, is dirt. And nothing else. Not a single plant, no houses for sure, no trees, no people. The earth was barren. That's the picture. Because the author of life hasn't authored it yet. God has not yet caused it to rain. Out of this... God gives life. He gives life to a man. Notice that in verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. From the dust of the ground, God formed him. He, like a master potter or sculptor, fashioned the human body with great care out of the most mundane of substances. The materials weren't special, but God made them sacred. He put his life into the dirt. And in that moment, humanity came to possess value and dignity and worth and significance. What makes you and I special is God's decision to imbue us with his image, with his very breath. To make us the way he has. There's nothing really significant about dust, is there? There's so much of it as to be not special in the least. But God's breath blown into this dust defines a very special creation, mankind. He was dust and now he is a living soul. So friend, the part of us that is alive is something much deeper and significant than just air in our lungs or blood in our veins, some biological process in motion. We live by the breath of God in us. 
A spirit-given power that makes us inhale and exhale, sure, physically, but also makes us aware of this life that God's given us, responsible with the life he's given us, thinking and processing about what are we to be, conscious beings. How much more valuable human life is when we understand that a body houses life breathed by God. We may be vessels of clay, but inside we are infinitely valuable treasures. Remembering this about us, that we are embodied souls, helps us deal gently and graciously with each other. The outside is the vessel. It's it's made of clay. It is made, because of sin, now destructible. The body in all sorts of ways, whether physical ailments or chemical mishaps, will present all sorts of challenges and afflictions to every person, including Christians who are walking by faith. Our brothers and sisters are going to groan and keep groaning due to the fact that our perishable bodies, perishable bodies have yet to put on the imperishable. But all the while they are valuable and possess these indestructible souls. We care for each other well when we remember that we are embodied souls. Outside the dust part of us is wasting away. But Paul says inside in this part of us that was made by the Lord. We are being renewed but day by day if we are following the Lord and kept in him. So Christian you can remain steadfast under all sorts of maladies and diseases. Any kind of harm inflicted upon you. Because you know that the breath of God the life of God in you cannot be touched. Only what decays is within the reach of our enemies. God gives and keeps our life. We see God giving life to the man. We also see God giving life to the garden and to the natural world. Look at verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight, good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you haven't learned this yet, kids, in science class, plants need light and water and nutritious dirt in order to grow. But what else do they need? They need God. To make them grow. All the fundamental building blocks of nature were there at the beginning. But they wouldn't grow until verse 9. God caused them to grow. Everything depends on God. If you learn nothing else in this series. I hope that one of the drumbeat takeaways you hear. From these nine sermons in the first three chapters of Genesis is. From creation on we learn. We depend on God. All the life you've witnessed this morning on your way to church. Depends on the word of God to keep it alive. Nothing exists independent from God. The songbirds in spring sing this song. God gives me my voice. 
The giant oaks and redwoods humbly admit that God's majesty far exceeds theirs. The wide expanse of grassy fields or ocean waters attest to an infinite God who created every blade and every drop. And God made life beautiful. If God were strictly a God interested in utility, he wouldn't have bothered to make trees that are, verse 9, pleasant to the eyes. The Lord developed and fashioned beauty to indicate to us that he is beautiful and he loves to make beautiful things. Anytime you witness beauty, you catch a glimpse of God's character. And God made life abundant. You realize in the beginning there was only one mouth to feed and the, and the animals, but one human mouth. And yet look at the menu of food options. Every kind of tree available for Adam to eat. It was extensive. The variety of vegetation from grass to shrubs to bushes to flowers to trees. There's abundance. I remember visiting an apple orchard in Massachusetts. There were at least a hundred, at least a hundred rows of apple trees. Each row at least a hundred feet long. And every row was a different variety of apple. Some only slightly different in taste or look. Some very different from others. God, we're being told, grew a great garden. With so much in it. And invited a person he made to come live in it. What does that decision by God tell you about his love for the people he makes? God gives life to the man. God gives life to the garden. And he puts the man's life within the garden. You and I have what we need for life just as Adam did because of God. You've had life much longer than you've known how to take care of yourself. And yet here you are having been taken care of. Before you took a job, before you learned how to budget, before you figured out how to cook your own food or even grow your own food in your backyard garden. Before you learned to drink milk from your mom as a newborn baby, you have had life. All of creation is a house made for people, for plants and animals. It is all God's gift. God gives life. And therefore... God owns the life he gives. God owns the life he gives. If you have ever gardened or ever tried your hand at gardening something, you'll learn about what plants need to live. You'll learn about what's necessary to help them grow into healthy plants. You'll, you'll start to feel that a right amount of water is appropriate for different types of plants, that different nutrition is necessary in different types of soil for different plants, and how many hours of light a different plant needs from another in order to grow into a healthy plant. You can even become what they call a master gardener. But what you'll never be able to do is make a seed start growing. There are ways to encourage it, but you have no way to command it. So those of you who have tried will know that you can put 10 seeds in the ground, but only six come up. We have no ultimate control over life, but God does. He can make things grow. He can make them not grow. He can make things live. He can make them not live. 
All this life that we are seeing God create, this world, this man, this garden, it's all owned by God. Your life is owned by God. A few years ago, a painting by the renowned graffiti artist Banksy was sold at auction for like a million and a half dollars. Seconds after the sale concluded, the painting dropped from its frame through a secret shredder installed inside the frame. I don't know if you remember seeing this. And later, the artist himself posted a video of himself installing the shredder in the frame in case the painting ever sold at auction. Now, I'm not sure. I can't claim to know what the artist had in mind when he planned the self-destruction of his work. But what I find interesting is that no one seemed to question his right to do so. And even those who might dispute that, well, in the end, they proved powerless to do anything about it, didn't they? He, the creator, did whatever he wanted with his creation, even destroy it. God holds this creative authority over your life. We use our lives for all different types of things. We take advantage of the life around us for good reasons and for selfish reasons. We can even live a long time effectively ignoring that the things we're using are not ours. You can grow so accustomed to breathing as to think that it is innate to you. The breath in you right now, though, where did you get that breath? And that breath. And that one. What about the other gifts? The families we have. The energies and talents talents we possess. Everything about us is owned by God. None of us has any control over when that breath will leave or when that body returns to dust. So I would encourage us, in light of this, to regularly be asking God what he would have us do with the time he gives us in between the first and the last breath. The time between the dust. In verse 5, man is described in how he serves the created order. He is a man to work the ground. God has placed you and me on this earth for reasons beyond our own personal consumption. He built us to care for what's around us, especially other people. As we heard from Mark 12 and we recited and rehearsed back to the Lord in our gathering this morning, the great commandment he has placed on all of us that he calls us to is to love him with all our being and to love each other as ourselves. So this God-owned garden in chapter 2 becomes a very helpful picture for our life together as a church. This is where Jesus has placed his life here and among all his people all over the world. This is the local expression of his people gathered around his name. God owns this people. He owns us. And because Jesus gave us his life, he breathes life into us. And Jesus rules this church. The life we live together, we live by faith in the son of God who loves us. And gave himself for us. 
Spiritual life comes out of our hearts through the means of the spirit and the word and the gospel. The church, the people of God is where God causes things to grow through his power and his word and his spirit and his gospel. This is meant to be an ecosystem blessed by God, breathed into by God, tended to by God. May that be true of our church. Each of us as members here, Each Christian person given a place in God's family is given a purpose to serve Christ and to serve his people. So members here, God has placed you here to work this ground, to work this garden, to care and to serve here for as long as he has you here. To be active in this is fundamental to to what it means to be part of God's gathered people. You're thriving, your provision, your growth will in part depend on living within and living off of the life of God that comes to us through his people. Life from his word, life through fellowship, life through sharing, life through intertwining our hearts together. Yes, you can thrive in other contexts and be a Christian. But I don't think you can thrive as a Christian apart from life in Jesus alongside his people. It's very hard to do. The fountain of life, Jesus, has attached his life to his church. Our Lord, the author of life, notably and noticeably from chapter 2, gives abundant life to his people. That's our first thing to notice from God's creation. Secondly, we see that God sustains life. God sustains life. You know how important water is to life. The nation of Israel, who Moses is writing this to, knew a lot about dusty wilderness. They knew the experience of thirst in a dry and barren place. The world God made, though, Moses said, uh, contained a lot, plenty of water. At some point in the creation, God decrees rain. And before that, there was a mist, kind of like a original sprinkler system before there were sprinklers. Verse five and six. And there were rivers everywhere. Look at verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. God had already told man, which we saw at the end of chapter one, that they were to care for the land and multiply in the land. And here we see God has pre-made all the conditions necessary for population growth. As humanity was intended to grow, they would need water for life and food. They discover in exploration that God had supplied the beauty of gemstones and the helpful utility of resources for technological advance. If God had not made provision to build a world that could support life as life grew, history would have been a very short story. Notice how verse 10 through 14 are kind of an interruption to the flow of this narrative. 
Up until this, it's one, the Lord God did this after another. Do you see that? The Lord God made the heavens and the earth, verse verse 4. The Lord God had not caused it to rain, verse 5. The Lord God formed the man, verse 7. The Lord God planted a garden, verse 8. The Lord God made the spring up, verse 9. And all of a sudden, the Lord God's kind of, they stop and they pick back up later in verse 15. But there's an interruption here in that pattern. It's almost as if the narrative wants you to think of the rivers as pre-existing. They weren't pre-existing always, which we know from his creation. But the narrative kind of gives that sense, doesn't it? They were just kind of always there. Given how water is later used in connection with Jesus in the Bible, I think this could be almost like a preliminary lesson, lesson in understanding how life in Jesus works. In the wilderness, Moses strikes a rock and water pours out of it. And in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says that water spouting rock was Jesus, who gives spiritual life to his people. At a well, a woman asks where she can get water that forever quenches her thirst. And Jesus says that he is that water. In John 7... 37 to 39, Jesus offers people at a feast to come to him and drink if their souls are thirsty. And when they do, their own hearts will become fountains from which the Spirit's life would flow. And in Revelation 22, Jesus' own throne is the fountainhead of a river that brings life to all of God's new creation. Eden and the surrounding region was meant to exist on a pre-existing and never-ending source of life-giving water. The sustaining presence of water would always be the life upon which human civilization could exist and thrive. This river that sustains the world is a wonderful illustration of Jesus. Did you notice the verses in Psalm 46 that Christopher read earlier? There is a river That makes glad the city of God. The place where God makes his dwelling. Well that place is Jesus. Oh how we need Jesus. Remove him. Our souls dry up. Neglect him. And our hearts wither. Plant your life near him and you will be well supplied in all the ways that matter most. You can no sooner find satisfaction in this world without Jesus than can a garden grow without water. This geographical region in verse 10 to 14 came to be known as the Fertile Crescent, the launching pad for all human civilization. And humanity has only continued growing and filling the earth since. Certainly there are people, sadly and tragically, who go without food today. And yet how many billions continue to be fed and watered by the same stuff that was here from the beginning? God's grace showers on all people, those who love him and those who don't. He is a kind and good God. When God plans for the future of his people, he makes plans not just for life, but for abundant living. He plans a place to live out purpose, a place full of provision for our needs, a place that holds great promise for a thriving future. 
And that place now is wherever Jesus, the living water, flows. So are the roots of your heart touching Jesus, the living water? Where are the roots? If my roots are anywhere but Jesus, I am living an unsustainable life. There can be no life in the branches if they are not receiving the life that flows from the vine. Psalm 1 tells us that the roots receive life through the word who is Jesus Christ. Friends, I got to confess to you that I go for time seasons, sometimes long seasons, including this week. I've been thirsty spiritually all week. I have felt dry all week. I've felt dry for longer than a week. I have had seasons where I've been dry for months. People close to me, my family, my wife could tell you, I have at times carried around attributes of a withered leaf. I have many times attempted to maintain a spiritual and fruitful life on the surface when my heart under the surface was not drinking from Christ's sustaining presence. And yet the river still flows. He remains available to us in his grace. Stretch out your roots. If you find yourself dry, if you find yourself unable to even find joy in life, stretch out your roots, cry out to the Lord to water you again with Christ. The Lord is gracious to sustain us by a spirit who never leaves. He allows us in patience to sometimes dry ourselves out so that in time we will return to him and find how sweet is the life he gives. And every time we return, isn't the case We wonder why we ever sought water from what doesn't satisfy instead of from the God who has always sustained our life. The third aspect of this text that we have to see about life here is thirdly, God not only gives and sustains life, but God defines our life. Look at verse 15. Then the Lord God said, it is not good Sorry, wrong verse. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. It'll be time for us later, Lord willing, in Genesis 3 to think more about this command. So we won't cover it all this morning. But notice that God is setting the parameters of man's life in two ways. He's giving him purpose. And he's giving him a promise. The purpose is to live in this garden, to work it and keep it. And as you read through the Bible, these same verbs are used to describe the work of the priest in the temple. God made the garden as a temple of sorts. And place mankind as his king priests in it to rule over it and care for it. Adam's job, his role was to facilitate the worship of God through a life lived in the presence of God and in service to God. So notice in that purpose how much authority God entrusts to man. 
This is so contrary to the character often given to the God of the Bible by our culture. God was happy for humanity to exercise their creative will in the world he made. He was not overly restrictive. He was overtly encouraging a type of freedom. God is for good enjoyment. He makes life to enjoy him with. Enjoy it as a gift from him. That's what worship really is. The enjoyment of God through the life he gives. That's why our worship as Christians will never end. Because we will get to enjoy him in forever life. So God orients mankind and puts parameters in his life this, with this worshipful purpose. And he puts parameters with a covenant promise. The backbone that kind of forms the spine that holds together the storyline of the Bible is God's work with humanity through a series of covenant promises he makes. Promises where God establishes a relationship based on blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And so I think the first covenant God is establishing with mankind is there in verse 16. Look at it again. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You notice the blessings and the curses and the promise held out for an ongoing relationship with God. Here is mankind given life, given access to a garden, given access to the tree of life in it and given a choice. Receive the blessing of living in a relationship of love with God or bring a curse of death. Bring a curse of death through loving something more than God. Now you might wonder, Philip, where are you getting love from this passage? There's no mention of love here. Well, how do you show your love to God? What does an attitude of love to God look like when it becomes publicly evident to others? It's when we choose to obey God. Jesus says, if you love me, what? You will keep my commandments. God made man and told him that this life that they would have together would run on love. The love that comes from him as he gives life. And the love that returns to him as man loves God with all his heart, mind, soul, strength, neighbor as himself. As long as those conditions applied, there would always be a life to live and a world to live it in. Adam had a choice. He had a choice to live trusting and relying on the word of God or choose death. Trusting in an idea and only an idea that there is some life apart from God. Now, if you read God's command where he says you can't eat from a tree and you can't see past the prohibition. Then you're able to understand why the world is the way it is today. As we'll see in a few weeks, Adam and Eve couldn't see past the prohibition. They were lured into breaking the covenant with the tempting idea that God was withholding something from them. But as we stand here learning from history and all the damage and brokenness, pain and grief, selfishness and destruction 
that that choice brought? As we consider all that was lost in the fall of their tragic choice to sin, was God really withholding in his command? Or was he protecting them with a loving warning? To know God and to receive his commands with joy. That is both the starting and ending point of life. God withholding the tree was God withholding evil. Believers, sometimes God keeps things from you for your good. And if you don't have a category for that. You'll be a miserable person. But if you do, you will find a kind of peace and contentment even the times when you feel the greatest need and want. God's love is behind God's law. God sets boundaries in wisdom and in love. He knows that death lay on the other side of disobedience. This love then moves us to want to protect each other. So we want to warn a brother or sister who is obviously disobeying God because life is what we want for them. We want to encourage people who are making hard choices out of love for God to follow that instead of the way of ease or comfort or self. Now, our culture all the while is going to trumpet in our ears the ideal of choice. And by that, they mean the freedom from any authority to coerce you into making any choice you don't want. That freedom from authority is the highest ideal of the age. But let me just pop that balloon. Let me just dismiss that as blatantly false. You cannot escape the authority you were born under. God's authority. You can no sooner escape that than a fish can live out of water. God made us. End stop. Life comes from him. End stop. You can try to recreate a world within this world. A mini world somehow out from underneath his authority. But God says it's going to be a foolish endeavor. So friend, if you're attempting it, stop. It doesn't accord with truth. It will not build what you think it's going to build. A better way, instead of buying into the culture's lie of human freedom out from underneath God's authority. Instead, let me give you this better way. See that God's definition of human freedom can exist underneath his authority. And it's better than being free from him. It's life-giving. Living under his rule of love is actually the highest human ideal. One of the marks of growth in your faith is that you will welcome God's prohibitions in your life. You will increasingly say no to your own selfish desires because God says they're dangerous. And you will rejoice instead of complain at the limitations God sets around you. Because in them you experience his love sustaining you. Adam had access to it all. Except one thing. And one thing 
was all it took to take away his life. Are you requiring one thing that God hasn't given you in order to be satisfied? Or are you satisfied with all that God has given? Life with God stops when love for God stops. This original covenant promise was a test of man's obedience. It would be different in a way from the ones that would follow because we could no longer, and God knew, depend on our own obedience to receive life from him. That would have to fall to another, which we'll think about in a moment. But this original promise was a test of obedience. Love God fully and the reward would be life with God forever. It was God's desire for man to live that motivated God to tell Adam no. But by placing the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, God shows he will not coerce anyone into loving and obeying him. He gave mankind a choice. In the garden, God gave us each responsibility for our obedience. And God defined life as a worshipful relationship lived with him in that loving obedience. In other words... You will not reach paradise without perfection. And Romans 5 tells us what we know. Adam broke that covenant. He chose death over love. And in him so have we. In Adam all of us have died. There would be no return to Eden. Because we have all made the same choice. We have all surrendered life through our disobedience to God in some way or another. And as a result, one day, our lungs will return their breath to God. And our bodies will return to the dust. And our souls, well, they will remain to answer for our obedience or disobedience against the Lord God who gave them life. What answer will we give? If life is only offered through those who are perfectly obedient, then we need someone to be perfect for us. And this is the new covenant promise that God makes. It is a promise that rests not now on man's ability to obey, but the ability of another man who comes not from Adam's line, but from God's. Isaiah chapter 7 prophesied that a child would be born from a virgin Not of the line of Adam, whose name would be Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And that child would know how to refuse evil and choose the good. And that child came, Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. Unlike Adam, he was born into a world in which already existed evil and good. He knew both. He lived in both. Unlike Adam, he lived in a world disrupted by evil and littered with temptation. Unlike Adam, the knowledge of evil, though, did nothing to disrupt him from absolute obedience to God. When the prohibition God delivered wasn't enough for Adam to trust God, God chose to give his obedient son as the payment for Adam's sin. So, friend, if you're going to walk into paradise... Life with God, you need to be able to claim Jesus' obedience for yourself. That obedience is impossible for us. Don't try to achieve it on your own strength. You won't. Death 
lurks too close, our sin too ready, our nature already corrupted. But, impossible though it may be for us, Jesus offers us the rewards of his obedience. Jesus invites us to make an exchange with him. The death we welcome through our sin, he says, he takes and pays for on the cross. And the life we surrendered by our own conscious choice to turn on God. Jesus says, I'll give my life in your place and I will endure God turning his back on me for your sake. In a different garden of Gethsemane, a place not of abundant life, but of grievous suffering. Jesus loved God more than life. And he obeyed unto death. On a tree not of life, but of death at Calvary. Jesus gave his life and by his wounds, his blood flowed as if a life-giving river that flows to anyone who would plunge in it and be forgiven and find life in his name. This is the glory of the cross. Christ became sin for us. In his death, the Lord of life offers you his life. Having obeyed for us, having paid for us, Jesus died for us. And then the Lord of life came back to life. And because he put our sin to death on the cross, he will now surely deliver all who find refuge in him. He will deliver us from death through his resurrection life. So the great mystery of our passage, as you watch the redemption story unfold unto its conclusion, the great mystery of the passage is that the Lord of life would plan beforehand, as he has, to give not just one, but two gifts of life to the people he created. He gave life at creation. He offers it again in a more full way and secure way in redemption. What a kind and merciful Lord. If he is the creator and ruler of life, what better creator and ruler would you have? He's the best and most beautiful master we could ever serve. How much more alive will we be now that the Lord of life has given his own life for you? Welcome his lordship over our lives. Believer, the Lord of life sent his son to death to bring you to life. What a loving giver. His gifts continue being poured out in your life today. He is merciful to you. How many ways are in front of you this week to express your kindness and your love and your appreciation to him, especially in giving your life as a response of worshipful service to him? Have fun finding those ways. The church is a collection of people Jesus has planted in his garden. We need him to grow. We need to care for each other. We need to invite each other in. Do this work in the garden that he's given us to labor in until he comes back. I'm going to finish our time. Jesus is our life. Life is lived where Jesus is. Adam's garden It's long gone. But Jesus' garden is alive and well. Ready to receive all the redeemed. Eden proved only a temporary dwelling, but heaven will be our lasting home. Our life is there. Jesus is there. Jesus, the river of life, flows in the streets there and into our hearts even now. 
He will sustain us all our days. We've only begun to live now. But there we will know life to the full. And we will live in worshipful love for him forever. Life is where Jesus is. He came with life for us. And we will go to live with him. May God keep us into that day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the life we live that we are aware of with its depth of love and mercy for us, Lord, continue to grow our understanding of it and our desire to welcome your rule and authority and the life that obedience to you brings. We thank you, Jesus, for coming to be perfect, obedient, and a sacrifice for us to exchange our sin for your righteousness. We thank you, Spirit, that you lead us ever onward into greater obedience and faith. Lord, please hold out to us the kind warning that there is no life apart from you to keep us on the pathway that leads to life with you forever. Help us to be instrumental in each other's lives to fulfill that function and to provide that help. Lord, for those lost in death, rescue them this morning, we pray. Bring them into your life. Lord, show us any ways where we're yet welcoming the life you provide in Christ. Teach us where we're ignorant. Soften us where we're hard. Encourage us where we're weary. Lord, give us a thirst. A thirst that we only find satisfied and quenched in Christ. And make us less and less prone to find satisfaction in any other place. Fulfill your work in us, Lord. Have your will be worked out in our life. Lead us in the paths of life for your name's sake. In Christ we pray. Amen.